Sunday, May 16, 1976, in Austin, Texas, 20-year-old Jennifer Barton had left home to hang out with a friend to go to the movies. Jennifer spent what we now know as her last moments on record at a local bar. One minute she was there, and the next she was gone. But there's always more to the story. Both friends seemingly never made it to the movie theater. After a quick stop at a local bar, with a friend, two men, and a mysterious van, it ended in nearly 50 years of mystery and unanswered questions. For decades, Jennifer's case has gone unsolved, without a trace. Some don't think she ever left Austin, then some think she may have left to go to California. Some blame her lifestyle as the reason this case remains unsolved. When you look at the details, there may have been some signs leading up to Jennifer's disappearance. This vanishing of Jennifer may not have come by surprise. It appears she may have knew something, was headed her way, or harboring a secret. What we don't know is, was this disappearance executed at random, or was it in connection of something she may have been involved in by means of retaliation? This is the Missing Found Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Harlow. Before we get into the case, I have a few details to share about the show. The Missing Found is an investigative true crime podcast focusing mainly on unsolved missing person cases in the Black community. The cases that I cover have either gone cold, have little to no media coverage, or have gone without conclusion. You can follow the show on Instagram at The Missing Found or on Medium at The Missing Found to read our original script. I also would like to mention that we have a case suggestion form in the show notes or description box that you can complete to submit your case suggestions that are of the Black and Missing. We have a Patreon that's now available for you to become a member in our private community to discuss cases deeper beyond our case analyses through private discussions with me, ad-free episodes, gain complimentary access to our original script, early releases, and much more that's exclusive for members only. The show is now available on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. For Apple Podcasts, we ask that you give us a five-star rating to help the show reach a broader audience to help find our missing. To access all things of The Missing Found, you can visit our website, themissingfound.com. I ask that you please like, share, comment your thoughts on this case, and subscribe if you found value and want to continue the journey with me to finding our missing and learning about their stories. This is case episode 21, The Disappearance of Jennifer Barton. Today, we're analyzing the disappearance of Jennifer Barton. Jennifer was only 20 years old when she went missing. The details are slim as this case is nearly five decades cold and unsolved. When you hear the details, it will make you question who all may have been involved, who was holding a secret, and what did she know? It also makes you question if her disappearance is connected to the case of two other women. We're going to look at the case details analyze and break down the little-known public facts that we do have, and close with my opinion. Like I've said before, in a previous case analysis, how many last nights have people had that didn't know it would be their last night? Think about that. So who is Jennifer? 
Jennifer Joyce Barton, or JJ as she was often referred to, was born on Tuesday, May 31st in 1955. It is unknown exactly where she was born, her parents' names, if she had any siblings or any specifics about her upbringing. We do know that Jennifer was raised in an upper middle class family and attended John H. Reagan High School in Austin, Texas. The school has since been renamed to Northeast Early College High School. Jennifer was described, according to the Charlie Project, as being a well-mannered child growing up. It sent a shock when she dropped out of Reagan High School during her senior year and dated a man who was a drug dealer and a pimp. Soon after, he was in prison and she turned to a life of drug abuse and prostitution. What caused this transition in Jennifer's life is unfound. I'm sure it will help understand the root of who Jennifer was and what she was involved in during her late teen years to early adulthood. The setup. Sometime during her stint as a sex worker, in February 1976, her pimp was murdered in a robbery at a hotel in Austin. It is unclear if this pimp is the same man that she dated and who was in prison or someone else. Rumors quickly spread, which led to Jennifer being the subject of her pimp's death and that she set him up. Now, it has not been proven if she was involved or not, but she feared that his friends would come after her. And they seemingly did. Possibly. Not long after, Jennifer's apartment was broken into and ransacked. Not only was her apartment ransacked, but there were odd drawings and writings on the wall. Literally. And it was all painted in red. Just to make matters worse, there was a pair of her panties pinned to the wall in her apartment, and next to them was the word, blood. The case details. On Sunday, May 16, 1976, Jennifer and a friend were said to be headed to the movies. You will notice that even this detail may not be factual. Some reports state that Jennifer and the friend had already went to the movies, then some say they were headed to the movies. Whether they were headed to the movies or had already went to the movies, Jennifer was short on cash, and both friends stopped in at a local bar in the vicinity of East 11th and Waller Street. The name of this bar has not been publicly shared so that we can locate it. The point of this stop, as it has been reported, was so Jennifer can get some money. What she needed the money for, that has not been understood or known. We don't know whether this trip to the bar was exclusively to get money for the movies, if they were headed there, or something else. While at the bar, she met two black men who offered her $25 for sexual favors. The men were described as one being 5'4", with a thin build, wearing a sailor's cap and a t-shirt. The other man was 5'6", with a heavy build and a large afro. The conversation between Jennifer and the two men lasted for about 30 minutes. She told the friend about the planned exchange, then proceeded to leave with the men. What the full 30-minute conversation was about, we, we don't know. One of the men left out of the front door of the bar and one left out of the back door. It's not clear exactly why they left out of separate doors. It is assumed that Jennifer walked out of the front door with the man, entered into the van, which is described as a brown or tan good times van with California license plates, teardrop windows, a large whip antenna, and a spare tire on the back. The van then turned the corner and the other man entered into the van. The question that I have is, 
Did she really get into the van or did something happen on the side of the street, the sidewalk, or somewhere else outside of the bar? We really have no strong confirmation of that element, except for the recount of the friend. A friend was walking down the street and saw the van after it went around the block and came back up the street. The friend said to have looked into the van, but she did not see Jennifer. Now this element I will discuss in my opinion because there is no understanding on whether this friend was the original friend that she had plans to go to the movies with or already went to the movies with or another friend completely separate. This is the last and final sighting on record of Jennifer Joyce Barton. The case breakdown. In order to understand this case, you would have to know key facts. And those key facts we just don't have because the newly shared information from the past 10 years have been a recycled recount of the friend with nothing to put a break into the case. We have the bulk of the story, but there are some in-between intricate details that I believe are lacking. I can't even give you a strong definite timeline because we don't have a timestamp of what time Jennifer left home, exactly who she was with, if they were male or female, how many friends she was with, if she met up with anyone else, the real plans for that evening, and if the movie theater was actually the end destination. So let's try to piece this together, starting from February 1976. We know that her boyfriend, who was involved in drugs and prostitution while she was in high school, was imprisoned. From there, she transitioned to becoming a sex worker and had a pimp who was murdered, and she was rumored to have been involved. We don't know if this is a different pimp or the same pimp that she dated that was imprisoned. The most important element that sticks out is that she was thought to have set him up. Whether she was involved or not, there were people who felt she was involved. This equates to retaliation. Keep this in mind. We quickly learn that something happens where she is given what I consider to be a warning. Seemingly. Someone broke into her apartment, vandalized it, then places her panties on the wall with the word blood painted in red. To me, this has earmarks of it being a personified warning. Vandalizing the apartment wasn't enough, but taking her personal items, undergarments, pinning them to the wall and writing blood can mean a few things. One, it could mean those who are responsible knew she was a sex worker and used her underwear to signify that. Those responsible could also be in that world or sent by someone in that world. Or two, it could have been completely random and unrelated. This means she was targeted by someone not connected to her. If they broke into her apartment and were completely random, what were they looking for? And did they take anything? Would a random break-in take time to write on the walls? Though I don't know the apartment building that she lived in, or even the street, but I heard that it may not have been a great area to live. And lastly, Jennifer may not have had anything to do with her pimp's murder. She was framed, and someone was after her and her pimp. Her pimp was taken care of, and she would be next. When you think about a pimp or just that world in general, you would think they have connections, whereas a lot of people in large sums of money are both involved. There's a possibility that this could have been completely random, just a completely random act, which I think is least likely. I think this was not random because typically when someone breaks into someone's home, they are looking for something. Whether they know what it is or they break in to find it, typically before a home is hit, there's usually some casing to see who lives in the residence and their routine. If they're not coming to take something, 
they would be breaking in to kill or harm. Because Jennifer confided in someone and communicated the writings on the wall, the panties, and the word blood, I believe, without a doubt, that this was personal, targeted, and they were sending a warning. It was said that Jennifer did express that someone may be after her, and it's not clear if a police report was ever done or if this was something that she just shared with someone. I do wonder exactly who Jennifer confided in to share the details of her apartment. Whoever she confided in surely has to have names or familiar with the full scope of what was going on in her life at that time. Lastly, who was watching her to know when she came and left from her apartment? Whoever was involved with the vandalization of her apartment knew she wasn't there. They had to. Either they didn't know and they took a chance and would have caused harm to her if she was home, or they knew she wasn't home and used that time as an opportunity to send her a warning. Not to jump ahead since we're analyzing every detail we do have, but because this break-in happened around February and she disappeared in May, what was going on in between the three months? Was she working? Did she still offer her services? Did she move somewhere else in the area? Was she still hanging with friends? Three months is enough time to let her guard down. The plans. From what we've read in articles, specifically the Charlie Project, it appears that she and a friend planned to go to the movies, but made a pit stop to obtain some cash. What I don't know is who the friend was and if they really did have plans to go to the movies on that Sunday at whatever time it was. The pit stop at the bar is something I found interesting. Some articles state that they went to the movies, then some state they had plans to go to the movies. As you can see, this is conflicting. The reason this element is important because an investigator and profiler will want to know who may she had encountered on that day because they can tie into her disappearance. It offers a scope of what her day was like, who she encountered, where did she go in her plans. We also don't know if the trip to the bar was for the sole purpose of obtaining cash or just to have a drink and meet people. I mean, how do we know Jennifer wasn't set up? I would like to know how often Jennifer would frequent this particular bar, whether to offer her services, or if this was just some wild plan to see if she can find a man to give her some money. It sounds harsh, but that's the reality of her lifestyle, so this time may be no different. I have read that she spent some time speaking with the two men she met. The conversation is something we just don't know about. What we know, according to the friend, was that Jennifer shared that the men offered her $25 for sex. We don't have any details on who these two men were, if they were regulars, why they were at the bar, who else seen them, what they were doing prior to Jennifer arriving, and where they were from. They had California plates. This could have pointed to them not being from the area and passing through. The vehicle was stolen or they just relocated to the area from California and the owner had not switched his plates over to Texas. If they weren't from the area, why were they there? Were they just driving through and then stopped at the bar? Or were they there to meet or target women? Law enforcement has been said to have spoken to Jennifer's family and friends, and they shared that Jennifer has stated that she wanted to go to California. Could there be a correlation between Jennifer wanting to go to California and the license plates on the van being from California? Could be, but honestly, I, 
I just think it's a mere coincidence. Goodbye. After Jennifer shared the transaction plans with her friend, she left with the two men. One man left out of the back and one left out of the front. This is odd as if they did not want anyone to see them leaving together. If one left out of the front of the bar and the other left out of the back, I wonder did he know the layout or the owners to leave out of the back without causing a scene, being seen, or maybe there was an entrance in the back that patrons would enter. We have to remember, this case took place in 1976. It was a different scene back then than it is today. I questioned this element in the case because why would the men not want to be seen leaving together when they had to be in close proximity to be both communicating with Jennifer throughout the night? Additionally, I wonder did they enter the bar together and if they were speaking and having conversation amongst themselves before Jennifer even spoke to them or they spoke to her. The men leaving separately lets me know that they had an understanding, a plan. They knew that one would leave out of the front and the other out of the back and the one that left out of the front will pick up the one in the back. This was not done by mistake, and there seems to have been something discussed between the two men at some point. Did they know Jennifer would be at the bar that night, or could it be just some men looking for women? The van. Once the man and Jennifer left out, it is believed that she entered the van, but we honestly have no solid confirmation of that. The driver then drives around the block to pick up the other man. They drive around a block, then come back up the street, but Jennifer is no longer seen. She vanishes. You should wonder, who's seen all of this take place? Was it the friend who was with Jennifer or another friend that claimed to have been walking up the street and saw the van turn the block? Now, another thing we don't know is how long did this all take place? Was the drive around the block a quick one-minute drive, or did it take time where there was enough time for Jennifer to perform services, then something happened? Or was there a handoff? If this was quick, we have to keep in mind that according to the friend, they were going to pay Jennifer for services. According to the Charlie Project, the friend was walking up the street and saw the van, but Jennifer was not in it. How was the friend able to see inside of an assumed moving van? especially inside of a van with teardrop windows. The van that was described as a good times van that they were driving had teardrop windows that were positioned on the back sides, front door windows, the rear windshield, and the front windshield. Could Jennifer have been in the van but she was just not visible? Was the van parked where she was able to look in and she was no longer in the van? If the van was parked, then where did the men go? If services were performed, did they pay Jennifer, let her out the van, then something happened after that? We have to explore all angles because there is nothing definitive to point to the men being involved. We can assume it because when it comes to investigations, assumptions aren't factual when it comes to building and investigating a case. Could they have gone back into the bar? If so, this could be dangerous because it would give the friend the opportunity to question them as to where Jennifer was. It also puts them back at the scene of a possible crime. Some may think if a 20-year-old woman was last seen with them, they leave with her, then come back and she's no longer seen, that would create the belief that they may be involved. What we don't know is if the two men were involved with the retaliation theory or if this was completely random. Jennifer seemed to have been well-known in her area. Is it possible that Jennifer could have already knew these men? 
We simply just don't know. But I would assume if she did know them, she would have communicated that to her friend that night. California Dreaming Some have alluded to the possibility of Jennifer leaving Texas and relocating to California since she said that's where she wanted to go. Though a possibility. However, in this case, I think it's least likely that she ever went to California. The license plates on the van does not support this claim and could just be a red herring. The search efforts. The search efforts were not really much when it came to media coverage. We also have to remember that this was the 70s, and in Texas, she was Black and her choice of lifestyle. I was able to pull a newspaper article that was printed a year after her disappearance, on May 7, 1977, in the Austin American Statesman. The article was, in my opinion, alarming, demeaning, but straightforward and gives us some answers to how this case was looked at very early on into the investigation. The article written by reporter Bill Cryer stated, quote, The clues that may explain her fate lead to dimly lit corridors of sleazy hotels and involve some mysterious people, end quote. This could mean the obvious, that those involved could directly correlate to her lifestyle, or it could be actual solid information that has been found out. The article concluded that Cryer will entangle the clues, quote, this Sunday, but the newspaper clipping I have does not finish the statement. I would like to hear Cryer's take in his analysis on Jennifer's disappearance. I say this because the closest we can get information from the date she went missing is where we may have access to the original report and the original case details. Law enforcement mentioned that they did try to locate Jennifer in Los Angeles since the California mention was brought up. They found nothing. It's not clear exactly what search they did in LA, but they found no trace of Jennifer. My opinion. A case like this is only as good as their witnesses and its details. Can a case like this be solved? Absolutely. It just takes fresh eyes on the case to really backtrack on what was reported in 1976. Investigations were vastly different back then. The resources were slim when it came to investigations. According to Richard Faithful, a detective with the Austin Police Cold Case and Missing Persons Unit, he stated, quote, You had very few detectives, or they called them sergeant investigators back then, and they did everything. They collected all their evidence. They took all their photographs. They collected all their own fingerprints. The only thing we had going for us back then was a department photographer. End quote. Faithful further explains that today detectives can now focus on the crime instead of handling the other tasks that investigators spearheaded for decades. The details on this case are very little. We don't have much to go off of, and we can't separate what is factual from what is falsities. We know that Jennifer was a known prostitute. Her lifestyle alone was risky and could have opened her up to any crime or retaliation. One of the last people to see her was the friend. We don't know who that friend was and if that friend is being truthful. Then, some reports state that the family and friends claim she wanted to relocate to California. The problem I have with this is, could this have been a one-time discussion where she was talking about California because she just wanted to visit? Was it just a thought that she shared in discussion? Or was there more to this? For all we know, this could have been just a conversation. How many times have you discussed with friends that you wanted to move somewhere? And it was just a discussion. I know I've had a few conversations like that. 
What I would like to know is that if she did want to move or visit California, was this before or after the break-in in her apartment? This could have been a discussion or her desire to leave what she had going on with her life that she was leading and those who she was associated with. Was Jennifer planning on making her way to run from trouble she was having in Austin and starting anew in California? Possibly. The tie to the California theory is because the men allegedly had the van with the California plates, which is still not a proven fact. Another interesting connection people are making is that Jennifer's disappearance is connected to two other young women's disappearance in the Austin area. Those two women are Brenda Moore and Deborah K. Stewart. Both Brenda and Deborah disappeared under mysterious circumstances and in a similar fashion, but not entirely. We will discuss the key elements to all three women's disappearances. Brenda Moore. She was 20. She was last seen by co-workers on March 7, 1976, around 3.15 p.m. Brenda's car was found by her co-workers on March 12, just a few days after she was last seen. And it was found in the 1900 block of Colito Street. The keys were left inside the car. Brenda was also married to Willie P. Moore, and according to her husband, he and Brenda had been separated for about four months at that time. Moore's husband thinks she skipped town with another man. He also states she had a new boyfriend who drove a blue Chevy pickup truck. Now, Deborah K. Stewart. She was 19 when she disappeared. Her last contact with family was on May 20th, 1976. Deborah went to work on May 21st, just the day after she was last in contact with family and was not seen after leaving work. Her car was found in the 1800 block of Fernandez in East Austin between 8 and 9 p.m. Her car keys were still in the ignition. Now, there were two witnesses, and they described seeing a black male with a medium stock bill getting out of her car. This man was described as being between 5'9 and 5'10 and 190 pounds. He was described as neat-looking with short hair wearing a long-sleeved button-up shirt and dark casual pants. Now with Jennifer, again, she was age 20 when she disappeared. She was last seen by her friend on May 16, 1976, which was four days before Deborah. And as we know, she was last seen getting into the van, which they described as a good times van. Again, the van was either tan or brown and had California license plates. Some witnesses say there were two black males inside. Jennifer was a known prostitute and frequented the area near 11th Street at Waller and 7th Street at Congress Avenue. As we know, rumors indicated Jennifer had stolen from drug dealers who were never positively identified. Then we have the witnesses who said she had made comments about going to California. Then investigators made efforts to check Los Angeles for Jennifer, but nothing ever came up. The disappearances, in my opinion, are not connected. This is not to say they're unrelated, but I just don't see a connection. I also want to mention that Brenda and Deborah's cases are both unsolved, just as Jennifer's. All three women worked, but maintained different lifestyles. One was married, but separated, and possibly had a boyfriend, according to the husband. The other was working, and we don't know much else. Lastly, Jennifer was a sex worker and possibly involved with dangerous people, which opened her network up to people having access to her. Both women, Brenda and Deborah, went missing three months apart, but their keys were either in the car or in the ignition. 
This isn't alarming to me. If Brenda was abducted, then maybe they would leave her keys in the car instead of taking them. As for Deborah, her keys were in the ignition, but it doesn't mean the car was running or started. They could have been in the ignition. She got out of her car to check something, and something could have happened. With Jennifer, because it has been said that she was a known prostitute, it is not understood what this means. Was she known as in popular, a commodity in her area? Or was it just no secret that she was a prostitute? Some articles have even stated that another friend saw the van down the street. The friend looks in and doesn't see her. My question is, why would the friend look into the van? The case details make it seem like this friend is a completely different person who just so happened to be walking down the street and saw this. Was this friend with Jennifer and the original friend? Was the friend that looked into the van the original friend? Why was she outside of the bar walking up and down the street? Was she leaving the bar looking for Jennifer or meeting someone else? If she was looking for Jennifer, I wonder what was the length of time from when Jennifer and the men left and when the friend began walking outside. If it wasn't the original friend and just another friend walking up and down the street, then how would this friend know or suspect Jennifer was in the van, that particular van? Lastly, what happened to the friend that was with her in the bar? the original friend. I don't see this case being solved unless law enforcement shares more information with the public, if they even have it, which I don't think they have much because it could be largely due to the lack of investigation back when it happened or lack of information. This case may have also been filed as a runaway. She was of age. She was a known prostitute. And according to the Charlie Project, Jennifer has a record of robbery, assault, and prostitution. With that, she has not had another arrest since her disappearance in 1976. I do think it's odd that Jennifer experienced a break-in with vandalism and a threatening word, blood, written on her walls. Like I've said before, to me, this, this was a warning. Because of her job, she most likely have encountered many dangerous men and women throughout her day-to-day. The drug dealers that she was rumored to have stolen from have never been identified. This encounter at the bar could have been random as a crime of opportunity or targeted if they were involved in any way. Remember, we have nothing solid to say the men were involved. I'm only looking at facts here. We just don't know. I think an important element in this case that we're missing is time. We don't have a definitive location at the very least, the time of day, and the amount of time from when she left the bar with the men to the time she was deemed missing by the friend. I believe a large part from this case is missing. I can't tell if witness recounts are faulty, or if there is something more going on that has been kept close to those involved or hold knowledge. The streets talk. Word gets around, especially in that line of work. Again, we also have to remember that the two men she left with does not mean they're involved with her disappearance. One can assume that because of what we know in the details, but there is no physical evidence to prove something occurred. They may have some information, have seen something or know something, but there isn't anything to suggest they harmed Jennifer or responsible for her disappearance. They may be persons of interest, but not deemed suspects. It's also interesting that they didn't come forward to say that they encountered Jennifer at the bar that night. I have questions, and I'm sure you do too. 
Who were the two men? Was everyone at the bar identified and questioned? Was the owner or manager of the bar that night questioned? What type of area was 11th Street back in the 70s, as this would give us an idea of the vicinity? Was there a heavy presence of prostitution in that area? Was this a popular bar that people often frequented? How many patrons were at the bar that day or night? What kind of people did this bar attract? Where did she live? How far did she live from the bar? Were the friends in Jennifer's network of people questioned? Was her family questioned into sharing what they knew? Did anyone see the men, Jennifer and the friend? Did anyone see the van? Who did Jennifer confide in about the break-in at her apartment? How did Jennifer react after the break-in? Did she move or move with someone else? Did she have plans to move to California to move on from the issues and rumors she was having in Austin? Why did she want to go to California? Did she stop prostituting for some time due to the rumors and a possible target on her? What made her feel comfortable talking to these two men and leaving with them? Was going to the movies really a part of their Sunday plans? Whatever became of Jennifer is unfound. I'm not sure if the rumors of her setting up her pimp's murder has a connection to her 1976 disappearance, if the break-in has something to do with it, or just her lifestyle alone. We can't ignore that Jennifer seemingly lived a risky lifestyle up until the last moment on record at the bar between East 11th and Waller Street. She walked away with two assumingly strangers for sex. It's not clear if the men were from the area, knew the area, or if they simply were passing by, was in the area strictly to meet women, or if that was even their van. Regardless of her lifestyle, Jennifer's family needs answers. As we know, the unfortunate reality is that a case that sits colds for decades like this can lose public interest. Something happened to Jennifer on that day. I don't believe she went to California or left Austin, let alone Texas. I also believe there are people out there, alive or dead, who hold answers to this 48-year-old mystery. If it was random, it's possible that no one knows, except for the one or ones involved. You know, a best-kept secret back in 76. As I'm sure you know, this case won't be easy to solve because of time and street code. 48 years is a long time, and it's going to take someone who's ready to come forward, who may have close knowledge or association to who's involved. Until people start talking, sharing what they remember, because time can alter one's memory, especially as we go through life's experiences in this span of time. Until then, this case will remain unsolved, open, and hauntingly cold. Hopefully, the person who holds the answers didn't die with it. At the time of Jennifer's disappearance, she was 20 years old, stood at 5'7 and weighed between 120 to 135 pounds. Jennifer is a female, African-American, has brown eyes and brown hair. Jennifer has a light and freckled complexion. She has a scar on the calf of her right leg. She also has pierced ears. Jennifer may also go by her initials, JJ. She was last seen wearing a burgundy bodysuit 
blue jeans, and sandals. Jennifer will be 68 today in 2024. I also want to point out that the missing person flyer on the Texas Department of Public Safety is incorrect. It shows the date she went missing is on May 31st, 1976, but that is actually her birthday. She went missing on May 16th, 1976. Elements like this can appear minute, but can cause issues in a case reporting, unless there is something more that hasn't been shared with the public. If you have any information or leads in the disappearance of Jennifer Joyce Barton, her current whereabouts, or any information concerning Jennifer, it should be directed to the Austin Police Department at 512-974-5250. Law enforcement is looking for information from the public on this nearly five-decade-long mystery. If you frequented the area of 11th Street and knew the bar scene was involved in sex work or was a customer, I strongly urge you to contact the Austin PD with any information you have. Your insight can help bring answers to solve this case. I want to thank you for your viewership of Jennifer's case. Though there aren't much details on her family, I know they're still awaiting answers. We know people don't just vanish. As always, please be safe, be vigilant, and always be aware of your surroundings. May God bless and keep you all. Accent it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who acts receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 8.